0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory.
2: We're going to start today with an unjustly forgotten American showman and museum owner. Charles Wilson Peel is best remembered today, if he's remembered at all, for a single painting called The Artist in His Museum. It's a self-portrait, and in it, the aged artist gazes intently at us as he pulls back a faded velvet curtain to reveal shelves of stuffed birds. (laughs) On the top shelf, there's a stuffed American eagle. On the floor, an American turkey awaits the same fate. But it turns out that Charles Wilson Peel's ambitions went well beyond iconic American birds.
0: We know Charles Wilson Peel through his famous portraits of George Washington and others involved with the American Revolution. But actually, he was in his day known almost as much as a proprietor of a major museum in Philadelphia. It, it was housed in what is now known as Independence Hall, uh, which was no longer being used for government purposes. And it contained thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of natural history specimens that he had collected and, with the help of others, collected from all over the world. That's Robert
2: McCracken Peck, curator of art and artifacts at the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University.
0: The natural history specimens were arranged in a kind of order of importance from the smallest things, insects and so on, up through birds and mammals, and ended at the top of his gallery with portraits of the people he considered to be the most important, affecting the United States and the rest of the world. Great men and women were all preserved in his portraits. And I suppose it was not a far step for him to take, since he was already preserving mammals as taxidermy specimens, to think that maybe if he could preserve them in oil on canvas, it would be even better to preserve them in reality.
2: Preserve them in reality. Hold on a second. Is he saying... I'm afraid so, Nathan. Charles Wilson Peel proposed stuffing the Founding Fathers. (laughs) I don't think it's so bad. It's our Thanksgiving show. And to kick it off, he decided he would stuff Ben Franklin's cat and a couple of golden
0: pheasants that
2: had belonged to George Washington.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He made his money by selling portraits, but also through the admission of people at the gate at the museum. And what better way to attract people in than to have a pheasant from George Washington or an angora cat from Benjamin Franklin? And so like P.T. Barnum, who interestingly became the ultimate owner of Peel's museum, Peel used the names of celebrities to help increase his attendance.
2: Well, in 1792, Peel wrote to a group of civic leaders that he had invited to serve as a committee of visitors and directors for his museum. Now, as boards go, it was pretty impressive. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton were there. But as many challenges as these men had faced, I bet the founding fathers had never seen a proposal like this one.
3: There are other means than painting to preserve and hand down to succeeding generations the relics of such great men whose labors have been crowned with success in the most distinguished benefits to mankind. The mode I mean is the preserving their bodies from corruption and being the food of the worms. This is by the use of powerful antiseptics. Although perhaps it is not in the power of art to preserve these bodies in that high perfection of form which the well-executed painting in portrait and sculpture can produce, yet the actual remains of such men as I have just described must be highly regarded by those who reverence the memory of such luminaries. Sorry I am that I did not propose the means of such preservation to that distinguished patriot and worthy philosopher, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. He could have been prevailed on to suffer the remains of his body to be now in our view.
0: I think he was serious. Peel was interested in preserving just about everything he could of the natural world. And he thought that by doing so, he could not only help people better understand the world around them, but also could leave a lasting legacy going forward. His portraits were all about recording American history. And so having human specimens preserved in the same way was probably just an extension of that same philosophy. I I don't think he was willing to pursue it uh, to to the very end, but he threw out the idea just hoping that somebody might uh, accept. Now, by the time he asked for Franklin's body, Franklin had already been buried. It was too late. Uh, But he still had a number of important patriots and early signers of the Declaration of Independence among his advisory group. And he thought that if he bantied about the idea, perhaps one of them would step forward and say, okay, you can have me.
2: So, so do we know how they reacted to this proposal? Good question, Nathan. But the answer is probably not. Unfortunately,
0: there's no written record of their reaction. We have to think there were a few raised eyebrows and maybe a few rolled eyes. Uh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations.
2: But you know, Nathan and Brian, I think we might give this idea a little bit of serious consideration.
4: (laughs) I'm looking forward to this, Ed,
2: Because, lest we think this is completely outrageous, we don't have to look so far to see political leaders embalmed and put on display. Think about the Tomb of Lenin, where crowds queue up to view the preserved body of the Soviet leader. Or think about the preserved body of Ho Chi Minh or Mao Tse Tung. But the real figure we should look to is a philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, the English utilitarian philosopher who had his own body preserved. Now, he still gets wheeled out for committee meetings at University College London. And as a former university president who has sat on lots of committee meetings, let me tell you, he is a sucker for posthumous
0: punishment. <laughs> so Jeremy Bentham actually went so far as to have himself preserved. Uh, I think he was bidding for a certain amount of immortality uh, and succeeded in getting such. He, he had... Uh, his body wrapped in clothing of his his own choice, uh, and his body is still wheeled out periodically for meetings and so on at the university where he resides in London. Well, all this raises
4: a really interesting question in my mind, I've got to admit. Now, I think we all instinctively feel that there's something a little bit wrong with stuffing people, but is there really an ethical difference between stuffing a founding father and stuffing a silverback gorilla?
0: Technically, it's quite the same. The only difference is that with these figures, as Peel had hoped, they would give their own permission to have it happen. With a silverback gorilla, they really don't have much choice. They've been killed for the purpose, and sad as that may be, they do serve some educational purpose, I suppose, in the long run.
2: Robert McCracken Peck and for the record we asked him if he would like to be stuffed after his death and he, he said no.
4: So today on Backstory, in honor of Thanksgiving,
2: we're looking at the strange history of stuffing things. I'll be finding out about the Confederate horse that still looks as if he's ready to go into battle a century and a half after his death.
1: We'll be taking a close look at the raven, which inspired Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe.
4: And discovering how Carl Akeley's dioramas captured some of the mightiest animals in the world and froze them for posterity.
5: This is a death mask of a grevy zebra. Um, And that's, um, I made that mold for um, zebras that were down at the the mammal hall at the Natural History Museum. So I got the, you know, I had the head and then I just made a mold, dental alginate, and then cast it in auto body filler.
4: Meet Paul Reimer. He served as a Smithsonian taxidermist for 25 years and helped lead the renovation of their mammal hall in the early 2000s. We visited Reimer to discuss the state of taxidermy today and got a tour of his studio to see how he works.
5: Yeah, so that was an actual, an unskinned head of a zebra. And so I made the mold just so that when I was mounting it, I could get like that sort of shape and then just sort of like some certain kinds of measurements. It's a little distorted because all this is really soft tissue. Um, but, But this mold gives me a ton of information. So some really important measurements are, you know, like where the measurement of the nostril is in relation to the mouth, how far back does the corner of the mouth, what is the, the corner of the eye to the, to the nose measurements. And then you start figuring out like, this is um, the zygomatic arch, which is that bone that comes around like that on a skull. You've seen that, like, where is that shape? You know, where is the shape of the jaw, you know, where the, where the jaw comes down in that muscle. And, and you can see the tendons that come through here and you have to sculpt all that stuff into the form so that when You put the skin over it, it looks like the zebra.
4: We met Paul after he got back from his morning duck hunt. He explains that, for him, hunting is more about the pursuit than the kill, and taxidermy is more about the memory than the trophy.
5: You know, like this, um, my friend, who's a taxidermist right up the road here, like five miles, he sent me a text of this deer that he's been trying to get for three and a half years. And, you know, and he's said, so, you know, I missed it two years ago. And he showed me all these photographs of, like, as he's been, because they've got, like, trail cameras and stuff. And you can see it every year getting bigger and bigger. And he got it yesterday with a bow, which is badass. And it's a huge deer. And so for him, like, that's what that's going to mean. I mean, he's really happy that it's big. And that's be the first thing that he's going to say. Look how big it is. But back in his mind, he's also realizing that, Took him three and a half years to get that deer. That's a journey. Uh, and that's what life is all about for me. You know, it's like, I love to get to the place, but the journey is the part that you remember, you know?
4: Paul wears many hats in the taxidermy world from working at the Smithsonian to going out on a hunt to meeting rogue artist taxidermists. Taxidermy allows him to straddle different worlds that are now starting to overlap and come together
5: a lot of my friends are traditional taxidermists that mount stuff for sportsmen deer heads and stuff that people go and hunt but then i also had this profession as a museum taxidermist where you know like i did stuff that none of those guys you know like i've mounted more than one gorilla you know like most guys don't well, can, can't say that so i mean it's it's just you know like that's not something that comes into a taxidermy shop cuz no one goes to africa to shoot a gorilla and have it brought for their trophy room. Mm. But I've done these weird things as a museum taxidermist. Mm. So that's another kind of foot in the world. And then as an artist, seeing people who are doing using taxidermy in a completely different way. So taxidermists, like the the good old boys that I know and love, they do taxidermy and want it to be art. Um, And then there are artists that are using taxidermy as part of their art. And for a long time, those communities didn't really meet. But they really are meeting now. If I put on my, you know, good old boy hat, I would say that the rogue taxidermists don't really have the really refined skills. They don't really pay attention to anatomy. They're not technically good taxidermists, you know, like so things look really rough. Mm. But they don't really care because they're trying to create this idea. You know, and using, you know, a stuffed squirrel as a metaphor for something else, you know, and so a lot of traditional taxonomists kind of looked down on that because they didn't they didn't really know the trade, and then the other artists are like, well, you know, you care more about a nictitating membrane in an eye than you do about the life or the idea or the artistic idea of the piece, and so now. People, they're starting to have more understanding and learning from each other. It's really cool, which means now there's like women in taxidermy. And so, you know, it's it's neat because some of them have come in through the rogue community and some of them are doing it just like straight up, really fine competition quality taxidermy. And um, it's neat. I mean, it's, it's nice because it's, you know, the world has got a lot of diversity in it. It's nice to see the taxidermy community you know, like, grow, because we can all learn, you know, from each other. It's, it's great.
4: Paul Reimer has been an artist and a taxidermist since he was a kid. In fact, he learned the craft of taxidermy from his father.
5: I remember, like, the first duck that I got when I was eight, and my dad mounted it, and I still have it up at the house. So that piece um, stands out for me, because I still have, like, two of the first pieces he ever did for me, but, but that duck especially. And then the first things that I did in the shop um, was—and I don't know if you've seen these in antique shops—but back in the day, people would have, like, gun racks, and they would be made out of deer feet, Mm -hmm. or deer lamps, and they would be made out of deer feet. And so, like, I did that. I was doing that, like, when I was nine years old. And, I mean, like, you never see that stuff around anymore, but it was, you know, like, it was a thing, you know, like, rednecks had, like, deer foot gun racks.
4: Growing up, Reimer was most passionate about drawing and painting. He pursued a studio art degree in college. But when it came time to find a job, the Smithsonian was looking to hire a taxidermist. So he dusted off the skills he learned from his father, applied, got the gig, and stayed there for the next 25 years. At the Smithsonian, Reimer found himself advocating for taxidermy's utility and its relevance.
5: But a lot of times I would be talking to a designer and, you know, they would say, well, we're going to do a model of a seal and we're going to do this. Like, well, why are you doing a model? Let's do taxidermy. Well, can we get a seal? I'm like, pretty sure we can find a seal. You know, they wash up dead all the time. You know, let's, let's talk to the guy over in the marine mammal section, you know. And, uh, yeah, we can find one of those for you. It's like, oh, so we could do taxidermy? Yeah, don't you think that'll look more real than like a plastic one that we would sculpt and cast in, pl- in fiberglass? Oh, Yeah. You know, and so you had to educate designers and project managers, you know, um, and writers that this was a, like a, a, an actual option.
4: Paul Reimer helped oversee the renovation of the Mammal Hall in the early 2000s. It was a project, he says, that worried some museum publicists initially, but received only rave reviews in the end. He thinks that's partly because museum dioramas are a singular experience.
5: It's a real thing. It's the real thing, you know. It's you can see. I mean, you're right with the internet. I'm like, you can see the most amazing footage of animals. I mean, I, every day I see something that just blows my mind. Um, but it's something that's on a screen, you know. And there's something that's still, uh, still something really attractive to the physical, tactile, real thing in front of you. And I think that that's something that taxidermy can offer. Um, whatever the scenario is, in a a museum context, that's what that offers, that a graphic can't offer, that a video can't offer. It's the thing. And people dig that.
4: Paul opens up his large chest freezer, rummages past other animals, shows us an owl head that he was working on, until he finds the subject of his next taxidermy piece, a rare condor
5: vulture. This will stink, even if, even if it's frozen. This bird has, I think, the longest wingspan of any bird in North America, like a 10 foot wingspan. Once again, this bird's been to crop seed. So, um, so after the bird died, they cut it from all the way down and they took out all the It took most of the internal organs out. Um, So what I'll do is I'll cast, I'll make molds of these feet so that I can do casts. And so then that material can go into the museum research collection. Same thing with the head.
4: As Reimer tells us more about his next taxidermy project, he explains that he's taking extra steps to make sure the bird's skeleton can benefit science.
5: I mean, I, when I was a kid, there were like 50 left in the world. So I remember when that thing was almost extinct. And they've done this breeding program. They've really come back. They're doing really well. But they're still highly endangered. And so this one is a known animal that had been re- re- raised in captivity and released into the wild. And so they know this animal really well. I mean, it's really old. And it died, probably of old age. And so I'm going to mount it. So I said to him, to the the guy at Fish and Wildlife, I said, what are you doing with the rest of the material that we don't use? Like all the skeletal material. He goes, we're not going to use it. I said, well, do you mind if, can we give it to the Smithsonian? Because I can use really very few bones and we can give that skeletal material. I can cast the feet, I can cast the head. And then all that stuff can go into the research collection. It's like, why would you throw that material away? And so they're going to have it. So like, that's really hard material to come by. And it doesn't benefit me. It's actually a hassle because i got to kind of do some extra stuff, but well, why would you do that?
4: He's not totally surprised that people are skeptical of his conservationist impulse, but he insists that it's a core value of his.
5: Well, I mean, hunters like to talk about how, you know, the first conservationists were hunters. And, um, you know, some people buy that argument and some people don't. I do, obviously. Um, and so... Um, Sometimes it's hard for people to understand that you could actually go out and shoot and kill an animal and still love and revere it. And that is a paradox for sure. But for me and my buddies, that is not a paradox. That is how we are. You know, like we respect the animal even though we hunt that animal. And so to me, um, you know, being able to, you know, like use that resource in as much, as big a way as you can. It just seems natural to me.
4: Taxidermy is full of contradictions, and Paul Reimer, the artist, hunter, and taxidermist, knows it all too well.
6: Today, there's
2: lots of debates about the presence of Confederate statues. But these granite monuments aren't the only artifacts with ties to the Confederacy. If you go to the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia, you'll find one of the most unusual examples.
7: Frequently, our visitors come and ask us, is this the place with the stuffed horse?
2: That's Colonel Keith Gibson. He's executive director of the VMI Museum. The facility is home to Little Sorrel, the famed war horse of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. The
4: museum has a stuffed horse? There must be a lot of padding inside that
2: steed. Well, Brian, he's not actually stuffed.
7: We do indeed have stuffed horses available for sale in the museum store, but when it comes to little Sorrel, he's not stuffed at all. It's just sort of a a way that we tend to think of that from our childhood. But uh, he's quite hollow.
2: After Little Sorrel died in 1886, a noted taxidermist named Frederick Webster mounted the hide of Little Sorrel across a plaster mold of the horse's body.
7: In fact, in Little Sorrel's instance, Frederick Webster was given the skeleton of Little Sorrel as partial payment. Today, Little Sorrel's skeleton is actually buried on the VMI parade ground. Hold on. Okay. Why did they mount Little Sorrel's hide in the first place,
2: Ed? That's a good question, Nathan. I think we might want to remember that this was Stonewall Jackson's horse. In fact, it was the horse that he was riding the day he was fatally shot on the battlefield at Chancellorsville. So, Little Sorrel was very well known, and his popularity only grew after the Civil War.
7: He enjoyed his notoriety and his celebrity status. He took, notably, a southern tour all the way to New Orleans, was uh, presented at uh, fairs around through the south. Folks would pay uh, an admission fee to see the little Sorrel. Now, it took its toll on him. Souvenir seekers pretty much devoid the horse of his tail and his mane, as they would pluck a hair to keep as a souvenir. And in addition to the mounted hide of the horse, we have a, something of a collection of of pieces of tail and mane that have been returned to us from uh, uh, maybe conscientious families over the years when they discovered that great-grandmother had visited Little Sorrel and took away a a souvenir from his mane. And they now felt obligated to return that to the museum.
2: So Little Sorrel must have been pretty popular with Southerners, right? Yeah, that's right, Brian. After the war, Little Sorrel lived part of his life at the old soldier's home in Richmond, where Confederate veterans tend to him. His mounted hide was first put on display there until it came to VMI in the late 1940s. Colonel Gibson says he's been a main attraction ever
7: since. Today, he's safely behind glass and is inaccessible physically to to the public. But once upon a time in the museum, he was in a very much an open setting uh, diorama, uh, very close to the public, and there was more than one occasion where a visitor, intending no harm but wanting that ultimate vacation photograph, would set their child on the back of Little Sorrel and take a picture. And we didn't necessarily encourage that relationship (laughs) with the horse, fearing that he or the child might be damaged, might be harmed in the process.
8: His stance is striking to me. Uh, When I think of uh, horses that are mounted, I think of more of a horse in an upright position. That's one of our producers,
2: Charlie Shelton Ormond. He went to the VMI Museum to talk with Colonel Gibson and see
7: Little Sorrel.
8: It's not really a stance that I would um, envision for a
7: reputable warhorse. It was pointed out at the time that he would be mounted in a moment of something, some unknown movement or sound capturing his attention. So his uh, head is uh, up high, his ears are pointed forward, directed uh, to that thing that has captured his attention. Unlike uh, statues, equestrian statues, uh, where you expect the horse to be in motion with a hoof perhaps raised, or maybe even two, as in the celebrated statue of uh, Andrew Jackson out in front of the White House. Or you think of celebrated cowboy star Roy Rogers, his horse, Trigger, rearing back on his hind legs. Little Sorrel here is as if he has just been startled and disturbed from grazing in in a pasture.
8: Little Sorrel's been here at VMI for a long time. Um, and has also been uh, in this form for a long time. So there has to have been some preservation
7: along the way. About to... Uh- Twelve years ago, we went to the Smithsonian to have uh, their staff come down, and in this instance, Little Sorrow received a bath for the very first time in about 150 years, uh, which uh, terrified me when I read in the in the proposed uh, treatment plan that that was going to be a part of the process because I could see all Little sorrow's hair just floating off down the river, and we'd have a, a bald horse to exhibit. Uh, but I was assured that no, that wouldn't be the case; that that's the standard procedure. That these days. So uh, he endured his bath very well, and uh, various other repairs were made to the hide at that point.
8: It seems like he's a something of a main attraction here at the museum. Do most people come here to see Little Sorrel? And uh, if they do, uh, do you hear anything from them about uh, why they come to see him?
7: You know, for folks interested in the American Civil War, there are only two Mounted horse hides that one can visit today and have the experience of the reality of this animal being a participant, a witness of those events. Little Sorrow representing, one might say, the Confederacy with his ownership from Stonewall Jackson, and the other representing the Union, a big black horse named Winchester, who was Phil Sheridan's horse. However, there's real and a connection that these mounts tend to make for us today. For some folks, there are mixed emotions when they come around the corner of the museum and see a horse standing there. For our younger visitors, they do not necessarily realize uh, immediately that the horse is not alive. And parents will explain that. But even parents have mixed emotions about it. Some of them are just amazed that they can look into the eyes of this 160-year-old animal and wonder about the experiences that the horse endured.
6: I always thought that Little Sorrow was on display in, um, like, an atrium.
2: This is Stacy Palmer. She's from Alexandria, Virginia, and decided to see Little Sorrow when she passed through VMI.
6: So when I turned the corner and saw him, I actually turned back around to the gentleman working at the desk. I'm like, is that really, like, the Little Sorrow? <laughs> He's like, yep. Um, I think animals is something that crosses gender, race, you know, it's something that everyone can um, can just relate to. Um, so I think when you can teach history through an animal, I think you can reach more people. I'm a history teacher as well. Um, and perspective is really important to me. I also think animals bring human qualities to generals. you know, someone that you think is very rigid and firm and law abiding. Um, but then you hear, you know, their love for the animals. And it is like you can look into his eyes and just, you know, it, it's, it, it melts you.
1: So Ed, you've done a lot of work contextualizing Confederate statues. We've talked a lot about it on the show. How might Little Sorrel compare to Confederate monuments in general?
2: Well, I talked with scholar Nicole Marantonio about the Mounted Hyde relationship to monuments, and she's researched how artifacts such as Little Sorrel, have shaped the way we remember the Confederacy
9: in preserving Little Sorrel, what we have is a lasting artifact that preserves memory of the Confederacy, connecting contemporary visitors to a past that, certainly while defunct, is certainly not has not disappeared right. And looking at the contemporary landscape and conversations, debates surrounding, Confederate monuments, Confederate memory today, we can see certainly the resonances of this history. And Little Sorrel really stands as one object, artifact, that crystallizes the, the ways in which that history is, is often neglected and forgotten.
2: And the Stonewall Jackson statue in Richmond is actually based on Little Sorrel, right? The horse that he's on is Little Sorrel, and it's based on this taxidermied model.
9: Yes. Yeah. The stance that Little Sorrel occupies in Richmond, standing at the corner of the Boulevard and Monument Avenue, is modeled directly on the taxidermied Little Sorrel.
2: But it seems in some ways the taxidermied Little Sorrel is more powerful than the granite one that's there, right? There, there's a, a, a human personal connection that seems to take some of the edge off what the Confederacy was fighting for.
9: Because Little Sorrel was alive, and that's one of the largest. The biggest difference between the monuments that stand on Monument Avenue and throughout the country and Little Sorrel himself is that the horse that stands at VMI was, in fact, at one point alive and does stand there to engage as a a lasting testament to what was.
2: Do you think Little Sorrel is a more powerful connection to the past than, say, Jackson's uniform or something that was actually of human scale?
9: I do, in in that— The horse's significance isn't only in that the horse lived when Jackson fell, but that, in fact, he enables the possibility to imagine what could have been in terms of the Confederacy. Rather, when Jackson left, little Sorrel lived on. So the horse becomes intimately connected with Jackson and then ultimately becomes really an extension of Jackson and Jackson's life.
2: So, yeah, little sorrels at the battlefields, that seems to me pretty direct connection to history. That's all Stonewall Jackson, you know, we, we study him for was as a general. So, doesn't this actually reflect the history that the horse is most relevant to?
9: To an extent, what we see is little sorrel connecting to battles, but we don't get a sense of the larger context or what the causes of the American Civil War were, or what the cause on on behalf of which the horse and the Confederacy was fighting. So we don't hear about the context of slavery. And certainly what we don't get when we see Little Sorrel is a greater sense of the world that Jackson was living in. And certainly while we do see Little Sorrel on display, what is largely neglected are the stories of the enslaved people with whom Jackson interacted, like Jim Lewis. Tell us
2: about Jim Lewis. I mean... I've read something back in the day, uh, older writing, saying that Lewis was the perfect counterpart to Little Sorrel. Maybe tell us how people would think about that, and then tell us what you think about that.
9: The connection between Little Sorrel and Jim Lewis is one that's often referenced when we think about the significance of Little Sorrel. Little Sorrel being connected to Lewis, who had been Jackson's body servant. Lewis was enslaved, and Jackson ultimately his master— But the connection between Little Sorrel and Jim Lewis is, in one way, I think really encapsulates the paternalism of the lost cause narrative.
2: So why did people think that Jim Lewis was such a perfect accompaniment to Little Sorrel?
9: The language that was used to describe Jim Lewis in many ways mirrored the language that was used to describe Little Sorrel, language of submissiveness, of faithfulness of dedication and loyalty to one's master. And that language that really paralleled one another really exemplified the paternalism of certainly lost cause narratives, but certainly the beliefs that Jackson held.
3: For they were equally obedient, patient, easygoing, and reliable, not given to devious courses nor designing tricks, more serviceable than showy, and altogether, as sober-sided a pair of subordinates as any Presbyterian elder with plain tastes and a practical turn need desire to have about him. Both man and horse seemed to understand their master thoroughly, and rarely failed to come up fully to all his
9: requirements.
3: Alexander Boatler, 1881.
2: So what happened to Lewis after Jackson's death?
9: It's- really unclear in many ways. Little is known really about Lewis himself. And certainly while there's a sense that Lewis had been buried in Lexington at what had been Evergreen Cemetery, the precise location of his burial ground isn't really known today.
2: So Lewis really mattered to people as long as little sorrel was around for him to take care of.
9: Certainly. yeah. Um, and while there is such little known of Lewis, there is In sharp contrast, much known about Little Sorrel. If we were to take a look at, say, the horse's obituary, it occupies two columns itself in in the Richmond Dispatch, for instance, in 1886 after the horse died.
3: Old Sorrel, Stonewall Jackson's war horse, died at the Confederate soldier's home near this city at 6 o'clock yesterday morning. He was Jackson's favorite steed, And often had he carried his master on forced marches. Often had he borne him to battle. Often had he been in the midst of whizzing bullets. Often heard the crash of cannon and the roar of musketry. Often he had felt his mane stroked by the great chieftain.
9: And I think that's a significant point of contrast is how much documentation there exists surrounding little sorrel's not only life, but death, and how little exists surrounding Jim Lewis.
2: What should somebody keep in mind if they go to VMI today to see little sorrel, as many people do?
9: To be critical of this particular artifact and its place within this museum, on the one hand, walking through the VMI museum, one can leave and actually purchase commemorative objects that remember little sorrel, like stuffed animals and other objects that are intended i think in some ways to do that distancing work and as visitors as tourists to historical sites we need to be more critical of not only the stories that are told within the museum but the ways in which we choose to commemorate those experiences
4: so to what extent does the museum see little sorrel as a really important symbol for the confederacy
9: well
2: colonel gibson says that little sorrel simply did the job that was expected of a war horse and he shouldn't be regarded as taking a side.
7: It may be too much to think that Little Sorrow had some nefarious preconceived intentions that led him to become a quote-unquote Confederate horse. We easily understand this animal lived. So in a very real way, Little Sorrow stands today as a participant of those times, silent, but in his presence is bringing something alive as it were, in an ironical sort of way, in a moment of irony, this uh, dead horse helps us bring that period of time alive.
2: Colonel Keith Gibson is the executive director of the Virginia Military Institute Museum. We also heard from Nicole Marantonia. She's Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Communication Studies and American Studies at the University of Richmond. We're going to come back to this topic in a discussion later in the show.
4: Now, I want us to think back to our childhoods. We're in elementary school, and the homeroom teacher assigns a project that requires you to craft a diorama. So using nothing but an old shoebox, a stick of glue, and a handful of foliage, you set off to assemble something that looks like a window into the natural environment. For many of us, the shoebox diorama was our first exposure to the wilderness. The diorama was invented in 1822 by a Frenchman named Louis Daguerre, later known as the creator of the daguerreotype. These early dioramas were typically large-scale, housed in darkened theaters. They were three-dimensional exhibits comprised of a landscape painting in the background and plants and rocks in the foreground. A precursor to the cinema, this immersive experience was intended to give the illusion that the viewer had been transported to some far-off natural scene. And by the late 19th century, American conservationist Carl Akeley borrowed from this technology of illusion and incorporated his expertise in taxidermy to pioneer a new diorama called the Natural History Diorama, turning a popular form of entertainment into an awareness tool for the conservation
10: movement. So imagine walking into a darkened theater. That's scholar Brian Rasmussen. And at the far end of this theater is an illuminated landscape, a landscape that looks like it's illuminated from within. And what you've got is a mountain scene in the far distance, enshrouded in clouds, a large panorama. And this is huge. Imagine uh, 30 or 40 or even 50 feet long and maybe 20 or 30 feet high. Mm -hmm. In the background, you've got these volcanic Mountains shrouded in clouds and snow. Imagine in the foreground, you've got a jungle scene, for example. And framing the jungle scene, we have vines and trees. And In the very foreground, you have gorillas. So what I'm describing is one of the exhibits at the American Museum of Natural History, hmm. the Silverback Gorilla exhibit, which is the exhibit that Carl Akeley is best known for.
4: What are we supposed to understand about nature and the relationship between man and nature from what you just
10: described? Very often, these dioramas weren't accompanied by lots of didactic text, for example. That's
4: what I gather. Right. We're ju- you're supposed to experience it, but somehow come away with something.
10: Right. You're supposed to experience, at an emotional and psychological level, the harmony of nature that was the explicit I design uh-huh. of a diorama. And so this is why sometimes scientists felt dioramas were sort of devoid of intellectual content. But there was a kind of, let's call it rational pleasure in the design of a diorama. The idea being that you were led to some kind of higher understanding of your place in nature through this mm-hmm. emotive experience in this mm-hmm darkened chamber, which was a kind of temple of nature. I mean, Mm -hmm. right there was this sort of transcendental philosophy behind the whole idea of the diorama, that nature supplied truths that once supplied by religion, that this was a, a distinctively American religion because of America's distinctive geography and fauna and flora, that there was something special about that. And so dioramas were designed not necessarily to instruct so much as sort of show you your place in an American landscape.
4: I understand that the American Mr. Diorama was a guy named Carl Akeley. Can you tell me something about him?
10: Carl Akeley was born in upstate New York in 1864, and he eventually came to work for the American Museum of Natural History, who regarded him as the the biographer of the American wilderness. He was a, what we would call uh, a certain type in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the hunter naturalist type. I think the most famous example of this hunter naturalist type is probably Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, And he was an ardent admirer of Roosevelt and they went on expeditions together into Africa. And he was, I guess he pioneered a lot of the techniques that we now come to understand as sort of synonymous with a natural history diorama, but he was also a sculptor. He was one of the first, if he wasn't the first, but he was one of the first to kind of marry sculptural aesthetics to taxidermy. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of the 19th century, and, and taxidermy was mostly a decorative art. Its commitment to a naturalist, what we might call a naturalist aesthetics, was not evident until guys like Akeley came along and sort of raised the bar in terms of thinking about like what you needed to produce an animal that looked real. So guys like Akeley were interested in going out into the field and doing field observations on animals so that they would produce taxidermied animals that actually looked like real animals as opposed to most taxidermy in the 19th century, it was done by people who had no field knowledge. So Akeley was at the forefront of that hunter naturalist tradition of naturalists going into the field, collecting specimens, making observations, sketches, photographs, and whatever, coming back and trying to produce very naturalist, very realistic animals.
4: I want to stop you right here and have you drill down into a term that you used, hunter-naturalist. Or we're also talking about conservation. At the same time, we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt shooting animals. What's the deal here? I mean, how can conservation be about killing animals, stuffing them, and putting in putting them in museums.
10: So museums didn't see this as a contradiction in the 19th century. They didn't see it as a contradiction because they thought that collecting animals was a form of conservation. Many of them were driven by uh, the fear that these landscapes of North America were disappearing. Around the middle of the 19th century, we get a lot of documentation on people registering their dismay and their concern that North American landscapes were disappearing. The railroad industry, cities, the collecting en masse of birds and other animals by commercial enterprises for like the hat trade, for example, which reduced the population of all kinds of birds and maybe even led to the extinction of some. So there's this real cognizance in the 19th century, late 19th century, that we're losing these landscapes, that these animals are disappearing to extinction. And so museums saw their mandate as conserving these landscapes, uh, preserving these landscapes in permanent form in museums, and then to bring those disappearing landscapes to people.
4: I, I want to ask you about naturalism and nature. You, you've talked about how people like Akeley was much better at presenting, for instance, stuffed animals as, as natural. But when I think back to the dioramas that I've been to, it's almost too perfect I, I think of, you know, the tigers look like perfect tigers and they, you know, the birds look like, you know, they don't, I live out in the country now, like animals don't actually look like
10: that, really. Right, what you're referring to is the idealization of diorama wilderness scenes.
4: Yes, that perfect, that's just the word. They, they must have been idealized.
10: Right, so this is where dioramas where the naturalistic slash scientific slash zoological impulse behind diorama creation runs up against the other big impulse that fed dioramas in the 19th century, which is the sort of aristocratic trophy hunting tradition. So without hunter naturalists like Teddy Roosevelt, who belonged to a kind of aristocratic masculine tradition of hunting, who were hunting game in large numbers without those guys, who also happened to be the donors and benefactors of these major museums, who wanted, in some sense, a place to put their trophies. So hmm. we can think of diorama halls at, at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere as essentially extensions of uh, hunting lodges of these hunter-naturalists who were wilderness enthusiasts and who were going out on expeditions, and they needed a way to turn those expeditions into something socially useful. And so they saw an opportunity in museums to give their collecting a kind of scientific and educational backing or justification.
4: And was there an ideological bent there as well? Was there any sense of hierarchy in these displays?
10: There's definitely hierarchies evident in these displays. The most evident, I think, is the the order of charismatic nature, right? So most of the animals that we see represented in dioramas are large mammals, large megafauna, for example, birds. There's this definite sort of preference for a certain kind of nature. It's a very selective attention to nature evident. I have never
4: seen a mosquito in a diorama.
10: Right. Exactly. So, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, these are not actual nature. These are idealized depictions of landscapes, and they're idealized in, on a number of levels. They're idealized because the the animals that were collected were the best specimens. For example, hunters want the best specimens. They want the largest specimens. They want the the ones with the most beautiful plumage or the most uh, the richest, fullest coats. So, in that regard, they're picking and choosing the animals that they do include. They're idealized also to reinforce the notion of pristine, untouched landscapes. That's the landscape sensibility inherent in a natural history diorama, that there are, there are unpeopled landscapes. But
4: I'm just going to blurt it out. I mean, isn't this about demonstrating man's control of nature?
10: Yes, it's man's control of nature. Well, well so this is interesting, because man's control of nature... The consciousness of man's control of nature in the 19th century is what drove people like Akeley to want to collect, because they right. understood that once upon a time, the wilderness was a terrifying prospect, right? The wilderness was, you know, it was uh, it was Jews in the wilderness. It was being, it was exile. It was darkness. It was dangerous animals.
4: It's where the term howling wilderness comes from.
10: Exactly, exactly. And in the 19th century, the wilderness stops being a howling wilderness, starts And starts being something um, that we understand that we are directly causing the disappearance of. Mm -hmm. And so conservation emerges out of this consciousness, right? This consciousness that we are, that our domination of nature is directly resulting in the eradication of of nature. So we're not really interested in conserving nature until we see it slipping away.
4: And where is the place of the diorama today in Age of film and video and three uh, D photography, not to mention the whole digital world, has it gone the way of, let's say, silent films? Is it a oddity?
10: In terms of their their continued place, as we've talked a little bit about, they are bound up in all kinds of interesting political issues. Environmental historians will say that this is actually one of the problems of the wilderness myth is that we tend to selectively preserve and attend to nature. We don't necessarily think about ourselves in nature, for example. We think we tend to think right. about nature in these pristine, beautiful places, and that's really great. And a national park is in some ways like a giant diorama, right? It's it's this attempt right. to preserve for all time against change a landscape. And that is a way of preserving landscapes and it was instrumental in the creation of national parks, the same idea, for example, that went into the national parks, went into the creation of these dioramas, but what happens outside of those places, right? What happens outside of the, of the preserved landscapes? Do we express the same kind of ethical care to our local I live in Los Angeles, for example. We don't exert the same kind of care uh, along, for example, the L.A. River where I live as we do to, say, Yosemite or something like that. And And so it shows. And so that kind of uneven distribution of our care may be a legacy of this old wilderness idea.
4: Brian Rasmussen is Associate Professor of English and Department Chair at California Lutheran University. He's the author of Technologies of Nature, The Natural History Diorama and the Preserve of Nature,
1: You may remember the image of Edgar Allan Poe's raven haunting the poem's narrator, refusing to leave him in peace. Well, it turns out that raven might
4: still be with us. Uh, Nathan, if you're trying to scare us, I'll remind you that uh, we've already done our Halloween show. No, Brian, you can actually go see The Raven
1: today in Philadelphia, and I promise it's as real as a cheesesteak or the Liberty Bell.
2: As real, but maybe a bit creepier. And that's why I will go see this raven never (laughs) more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me take a wild guess.
4: I'm guessing that it's a taxidermied raven, Nathan? It absolutely is. What makes it pose raven? There are a lot of ravens out there. If it's just some dead bird replica, I'm going to lose interest pretty quickly.
1: That's a fair question. And being from Baltimore, I have to be sensitive to it as well. But I can assure you that this is not just some dead bird. Before inspiring Poe, it was actually another celebrated author's pet.
0: Dickens was quite interested in ravens, and actually during his lifetime he had at least three live ravens. Grip was the first one, and Grip served as a character in his mystery novel, Barnaby Rudge. That's Robert McCracken
1: Peck from the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University, joining us again. And he helped
0: bring Grip back to life. In 1991, the bird had some signs of domestic beetle damage. This is a very common insect pest that will get into a mounted specimen and eat away at the base of a feather, for example, in a bird. Fortunately, the people who had mounted grip originally, the taxidermist who worked for Charles Dickens to do this work, had applied a lot of arsenic. And this was common in the 19th century. And so the domestic beetles, as soon as they hit the arsenic, they died. Nevertheless, there were some skins of the insects around the base of the bird, and I think the library was quite right in having us double-check its health and safety.
4: Let me get this right. The raven that's now in Philadelphia was once Charles Dickens' pet raven?
1: It was. And apparently, the fact that Dickens loved his raven grip so much motivated him to taxidermy his raven after he died. Listen to how Dickens describes his attachment to his pet raven in the preface of Barnaby
3: Rudge. "'It may have been that he was too bright a genius to live long, or it may have been that he took some pernicious substance into his bill and thence into his maw, which is not improbable, seeing that he tore up and swallowed, in splinters, the greater part of a wooden staircase of six steps and a landing.' But after some three years, he too was taken ill and died before the kitchen fire. He kept his eye to the last upon the meat as it roasted and suddenly turned over on his back with a sepulchral cry of, Cuckoo! Since then, I have been ravenless.
1: And in Barnaby Rudge, Dickens revives grip by turning him into a character in the novel and making him Barnaby's mischievous companion.
11: Well, it's a funny thing. In fact, he is um, the sort of the figure with whom we are left at the very end of the novel. We have the sort of penultimate paragraph of the whole book um, describing how the bird advanced with fantastic steps to the very door of the bar and there cried, I'm a devil, I'm a devil, I'm a devil, with extraordinary rapture. And then in the very last paragraph, and indeed the last line of the last paragraph, uh, we're told that Quote, from that period, he constantly practiced and improved himself in the vulgar tongue. And as he was a mere infant for a raven when Barnaby was gray, he has very probably gone on talking to the present time.
1: That's Matthew Redmond. He's a doctoral student in English at Stanford University, and he recently wrote an article about Dickens, Poe, and the raven.
11: I think it's uh, quite an interesting thing, and in that Dickens appears to be doing on a literary level with this final paragraph. What he also then does in his own life—he's sort of preserving the the raven in a permanent state that will enable him to survive decades into the future. It's the sense that Dickens wants this raven preserved. Uh, he has him stuffed, of course, and uh, the raven's this presence of this, indeed, the figure of the raven sort of broods over him in his study in its taxidermied state while he writes. And I think Dickens perhaps looks upon Grip as a kind of representative, a figure for himself.
1: So it was the works he created and could carefully control, from his books to his bird, that he associated most closely with himself and how he wanted to be remembered.
11: Indeed. He was so conscious of his own image all through his life and with sort of distilling his character into this sort of ideal form. And I think he sees his works as sort of um, maintaining that form and sort of preserving it perhaps almost in a taxidermied state into the future. And that uh, this becomes a great focus of his life, you know, sort of curating his works in, in just the right way and preparing them for that afterlife that he intends for them.
4: Okay, I understand why this raven meant so much to Charles Dickens now. But I don't understand where Poe fits into all of this.
1: Uh Aha, see, Poe was intrigued and influenced by the character Grip in Barnaby Rudge. But ultimately, as he wrote in a review at the
3: time, he found Grip wanting. The raven, too, intensely amusing as it is, might have been made, more than we now see it, a portion of the conception of the fantastic Barnaby. Its croakings might have been prophetically heard in the course of the drama. Its character might have performed, in regard to that of the idiot, much the same part as does, in music, the accompaniment in respect to the air. Each might have been distinct. Each might have differed remarkably from the other. Yet between them, there might have been wrought an analogical resemblance, and although each might have existed apart, they might have formed together a whole which would have been imperfect in the absence of either. For Poe, Dickens's carefully constructed, neatly
1: put-together raven seemed to miss the mark, and so Poe becomes convinced that he can create a better raven and sets out to write his now famous poem. The
3: Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this, and nothing more.
11: I think that The Raven, in some ways, is a kind of allegory of poetic process, and that Poe is sort of taking Dickens' Raven and writing a poem in which he sort of meditates on the very act of taking someone else's literary device and, and what it means to do that. And the speaker of that poem is sort of perhaps buried underneath all of the books and and the vast volumes of, of forgotten lore in his study. I mean, Derrida famously observes that the poem begins among books and papers and letters and thus does not begin at all. And I think he would have been keenly aware of the ways in which uh, literature and, and taxidermy have a number of things in common. This desire to sort of reanimate the past and make it sort of present in, in some way and sort of bring about some kind of resurrection that in some ways is, is quite fearful and, and confusing, perhaps.
1: Dickens loved his raven so much that he did all this work to keep him alive through his writing and by having him taxidermy. But most people know the raven thanks to the poetic version Poe imagines from the other side of the Atlantic never having even set his eyes on the real bird. But ultimately, whether it's through Dickens or Poe, whether it's in physical or literary form, the raven seems determined to last, to persevere through time, to maintain its grip on us. And so, years later, long after they both had died, the raven followed Poe, his deceased popularizer, home to Philadelphia, where he remains today.
0: Grip is standing in a very sort of regal, raven-like pose and is mounted in a rustic shadow box that apparently Charles Dickens embellished himself with branches from his own estate. It gives it a, a very kind of a natural appearance, but the bird shows no signs of activity. His wings are not extended or anything. He's simply standing uh, the way he would have been in life. I think grip is in very stable condition right now. We opened up the shadow box that he was housed in and cleaned all of that out. The dust is removed, uh, any other particulate matter, the insects are all gone, uh, and it's all been carefully sealed up. The Freed Library keeps it under wonderful conditions with temperature and humidity control, and we're fairly confident that given the arsenic load in the skin, it's unlikely to get any infestation of cigarette beetles or dermestid beetles anytime soon
11: the sort of feathery figure of this taxidermied raven still sort of expresses an essential tension in Poe's writing, this tension that's expressed with the question, who is controlling whom? On the one hand, we have these very ingenious and and, uh, meticulous efforts to preserve the raven. It seems that we are keeping him under glass and controlling it in a manner of speaking. And yet ultimately is not the raven sort of controlling us and compelling us to, to preserve him? And there's this kind of ambiguity that I think Poe would thoroughly enjoy, and uh, that I think he would be delighted by the whole thing, precisely, you know, fascinated by the strangeness of, of it all and the circuitous quality and the way that it sort of beggars easy answers.:
3: And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore.
1: Robert McCracken Peck is a senior fellow at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University and a curator of art and artifacts. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Specimens of Hair, The Curious Collection of Peter A. Brown. Matthew Redman is a doctoral student in English at Stanford University. His article, If Bird or Devil, was recently published in the Edgar Allan Poe Review.
4: Nathan, Ed, I don't know if you saw the email just came in, but they've proposed stuffing the co-hosts the backstory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm not up for it. We can laugh about this, but I got to admit that as we did the show, I recognized there are actually some pretty serious historical questions entailed in To Stuff or Not.
2: Yeah, you know, and for me, who is a little bit squeamish about such things, the idea of stuffing animals was alarming on its surface, but there's also historical issues for us to think a little bit about. You know, when uh, Charlie and Keith Gibson at uh, VMI were talking about the horse, uh, and then when I was talking with Nicole Montonio, um, you, you hear sort of different perspectives on what this might mean. You know, Colonel Gibson sees it as basically kind of an introduction to letting people think about the Civil War who might not otherwise. Nicole wonders if the whole idea of having attractive horse there doesn't kind of domesticate uh, the Confederacy a little bit and obscure the issues over which the war was fought. So it's interesting that problems that you would never think of as being associated with taxidermy uh, are there when you look a little bit closer.
1: Well, I think, too, it's also about— conjuring people's imagination. You know, if you imagine the 18th century cabinets of curiosities with all these objects taken from the New World or the World Columbian Exposition in the 1890s and these, you know, living exhibits with, you know, stuffed animals, effectively. So much of this is meant to help people who can't maybe get to a place imagine what that place might be like in, on the other side of the world. And I and I wonder, even when we're talking about stuffing the founding fathers, <laughs> if some some of that is about imagining what the founders would really think in the here and now if you could just look them in the eye and kind of pose a question, you know. And so it's, it's different, obviously, in many respects from what we do as historians, but there's also an element there of trying to help people, you know, connect with something that they might not necessarily experience firsthand at a, at a past place or a distant place.
2: Yeah, people seem very interested today in going to Madame Tussauds wax figure museum. There's something Mm -hmm. about somebody being there in three dimensions of human scale that makes them more approachable. I think the other thing, Brian, this reminds us is that in the 18th and 19th centuries, people were a lot closer to death and a lot less Mm. squeamish about remains than we are today, where the goal seems to be to- Make it disappear. As quickly as possible, you know, there's a a tendency toward cremation and not having sort of of people displayed in their caskets nearly as much and so forth. But, you know, it was common in the 19th century for loved ones, children, uh, spouses, to basically be put on display in the the home. And people preserve hair and things like that that seem to us inappropriate. It seems to me maybe the stuffing of animals is not unrelated to that, is that people think about the body— Uh, in a different way, whether it's humans or animals. So answer me this, Nathan.
4: If Ed is right, and he makes a compelling case, why is taxidermy coming back? I understand they're hipster taxidermists, uh, that it's, it's cool among young people.
1: Well, well, there are ways in which I think people are still looking to these old forms. Some hipsters want to make horseshoes or, or blacksmiths, right? I mean, there's, there's something about old-style craftsmanship of one kind or another. And so if you think about 19th century creativity, right, I mean, taxidermy and the making of barrels and craft beer, I mean, all this stuff is part of a it's certain real. Kind... It's, yeah, real. Yeah, it's, it's, it's real. It's real. It's real. It's tangible. It's, more... it's not digital. Exactly. It's more, it's more authentic. But I think there's also a question here that, that gets raised even from the point that Ed had made about, you know, the deeply historical nature of our relationship to the real, right? And, and particularly now, thinking about like zoos, for instance, right? We, we take it as totally acceptable to have animals that are confined in spaces that we can then observe. And we imagine, we hope that they're being handled in a somewhat humane way, even if sometimes we know that they're not. And I wonder if, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, folks will look back on our generation and wonder about that zoo thing that we seem so committed to observing animals who are locked up in these different, you know, pens and cages and stuff. So, you know, in, in a way, it's it's very humbling to think that you know we have the luxury of looking at you know living animals in, in places now that you know formerly would just simply be these dioramas, effectively.
4: And to just underscore your point, Nathan, those hipster taxidermists, at least some of them, uh, insist that no animals were harmed during the process. They actually stuff animals that either died by natural causes or died in one way or another. They didn't kill them in order to mount them uh, over their roaring fire.
2: Yeah, I think there's a, a quest for honesty as well as authenticity in this. You know, uh, we eat animals in the forms of fillets and patties and, and that sort of thing. But don't think very much about the animal from which it came. You could argue that having to sort of look your dinner in the eye, <laughs> even if it's a glass eye, uh, is a good reminder of our connections to the world. That's going to do it for us today. Do get in touch. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send us an email at backstory@virginia.edu. At Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
1: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment.
4: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham, for Virginia Humanities.